Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking with Evan Pycon, the, I think, a really interesting guy looking at energy systems in a very unique way. Uh, I have all of his stuff featured on our website. I'll put it in the show notes. I really recommend you spend some time with Evan's take on bioenergetics and it stems from just looking at more comprehensive tools of how we utilize oxygen within the energy with our within energy production. Um, and then just looking at it from a more practical perspective and looking at different case studies and examples of of just what is actually more common that we're seeing in terms of results from specific performance testing. So Evan, I am really stoked on this conversation. Uh, I think Evan is brilliant guy. And honestly, he's definitely made me can reconsider some stuff and think about stuff in a new way that I think is going to be helpful for a lot of coaches out there. And it's just the first of many steps. So you've got to go through his, all of his YouTubes, all of his uh, blog posts, everything else out there amongst the other stuff that he's got coming down the pipe, because you're going to start this process of looking at energy systems in a very, very new way. And it's going to open up some eyes to a lot of areas that quite frankly, are it's needed. And we need to start revisiting some of the stuff that we've kind of taken for granted for a long time. Want to give a couple notes. Uh, we have strength deficit available for pre-order. Save 10 bucks off the retail price in Amazon. Along with that, through July, we'll actually give you a copy of the programs that inspired the book. Strength deficit, leveraging eccentric versus concentric ratios to peak for performance. I'm excited about this project. Amongst all of the other stuff we have featured within our library on phpodcast.com between testing and metrics exercises and specific programming aspects of strength deficit that will help you as a reader so while you're waiting for the book become a member to strength deficit uh, to uh, ph podcast curriculum to get access to all the library that helps you in terms of learning more about strength deficit and how to practically apply it also to realize.me it is your command center for health and performance i use realize.me for all of my tracking so all of my nutrition all of my supplements all of my internal and external measurements between wellness RPE, looking at blood glucose monitoring, looking at all my blood panels, looking at all of the stuff that I collect on a daily basis, putting that into Realize Me as one single source location. This is the biggest problem we find with analytics now is it's all siloed off. We are collecting more and more, but it's not communicating and not integrating into a single, single use purpose with Realize. And Realize has answered that. It's answered for myself personally. It's answered for my gym. It's answered for my staff. I cannot recommend this resource enough. Plus, if you do become a member, you'll get special discounts on things like blood panels, things like wearables, seeing all the ver- all the stuff that you're going to or doing all the stuff you're going to do on a recurring basis if you really want to track at a high level at a discounted rate. And this will be all the perks of being a member of Realize.me. I have available wait list. So if you get on now early, you'll have access to all of the stuff beforehand. Plus, Ryan and Danny and all the blog posts are doing. It's just giving a lot of great insight on amazing stuff. So I highly recommend Realize.me. I think it's going to be a really valuable resource for a lot of coaches out there. It's been a valuable resource for myself and my staff. I just answered a lot of problems that I had and it's continuing to bring recurring value. So I cannot recommend that enough for all of you guys out there. Without further ado, we're going to have Evan on here. I'm excited about this episode. Please check out phpodcast.com to go through the energy system module because it has all this principles, practical case study. Remember, we have Andrew Gingerelli's special case studies supposed to be available for everybody out there, um, not just featured through the website uh, on this specific module. Um, and he talks about his focus on developing strength 
with endurance athletes. So huge month. I'm really fired up to close it up with Evan. I think he is going to bring a lot of new thoughts and a lot of new paradigm shifting for a lot of us as strength conditioning coaches and how we view bioenergetics and energy systems. All right, everybody. We have Evan Pikin on today. Did I pronounce that right? Okay. Evan Pike and we have him on. Um, honestly, like I got exposed to his stuff recently from a good friend, Eric Schmidt, and uh, he just brought up, hey, Evan's bringing up some really interesting points, um, talking about different things like Moxie and revisiting the bioenergetics model as it stands today. And hey, there's some stuff that's flawed about it and some stuff we need to move on from. So one, if you haven't put, check that out. I have all the links on the website. Please do. I'll actually put all the links to his YouTube at that and anything Evan mentions today that would be helpful. Um, and then two, um, let's think about some questions that we may have for Evan today, because this is going to start a really big paradigm shift for you as a, as a person who looks at performance and training energy systems. And the way we viewed it up until this point is, I think it's going to be a paradigm shift into a new view of how energy systems work. So one, thank you, Evan, for being on. And two, um, take a second to introduce yourself, go through what you're doing, and uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. So first off, thank you for having me on. Again, my name is Evan Pycon. I'm the chief physiologist for a tech company called Knox. I work on a wearable sensor development and analytics. Prior to that, I ran an independent lab called the Emergent Performance Lab, where I worked with a lot of U.S. professional sport teams and military special operations as a applied physiology consultant. And before that, kind of taking multiple steps, um, I worked for a company called Training Think Tank, where I coached a lot of CrossFit competitors and did physiological testing on um, everyone from recreational athletes up into podium CrossFit Games athletes. So at what point did you realize that the bioenergetics models that stands today, and we'll just, I'll just lay that out here quickly mm -hmm. before we get into it, this thought process of a predetermined time variant for a lactic or phosphogen system, glycolytic or lactic system, and then oxidative or more aerobic-ish system. At what point did you look at that go, there's, there's a lot missing here and, and I need to start diving deeper into some areas? So probably around 2012 or 2013 ish, somewhere in that area. So to give some perspective, um, my background isn't in exercise science specifically. So I went to school for biochemistry and molecular bio. So I was very much thinking about energetics from a different standpoint. At the same time, I was also very interested in sports science, exercise physiology, and all the fields that we're going to get into today. So immediately when I was learning about energetics through formal education, there's a very hard and fast disconnect between what I was learning there and what I was seeing in exercise science books. And exercise science books were all probably familiar with the charts that show the relative energy contribution of the varying energy systems as a function of time. So typically they'll show something to the effect that under two seconds, we're primarily using ATP stores, then from two seconds to 10 seconds, phosphogen stores, 10 seconds to two minutes, glycolytic system, and past that, really just using the oxidative system to power activity. That was almost a flip-flopped version of what I was learning about elsewhere. So that kind of started this whole journey of trying to understand, well, how do energy systems really work in the body? How do they 
uh, transform energy from a non-usable form to a usable form? And then how do we reconcile some of those differences, um, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more today. Yeah. So, um, well, it's fascinating on the, the, the background, right? Um, have you forever read the, the work of Neil Lane and like, uh, power, sex, suicide, oxygen advantage and things yes. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, your initial thought was, okay, we have a more reptilian pathway that works anaerobically, um, just from functioning off of like glycolysis, uh, without the presence of oxygen. And then we have the more modern, um, I guess, modern homo sapien and the cells that we actually function on is aerobic respiration is the natural evolutionary process to basically becoming the, the species that we are today. Uh, you know, the thought of that, like there's a reason why we evolved to become more oxidative and utilizing oxygen because it was just more efficient and we can have longer energy production and more energy yield. Mm-hmm. What would be your thought of why did we start to almost reverse that like or not reverse it but just dismiss that evolutionary process and go straight to this like predetermined energy system zone is it like everyone was going too much aerobic work in the 60s and 70s and we needed to create like some sort of model that dissuaded that or was it just lack of understanding of different disciplines in science yes yeah, so i think a lot of it had to do with the technologies that were available at the time to measure these different energetic processes lead to paradigms that aren't correct. On a side note on the Nick Lane books, one of my coworkers is one of the like main characters in one of the Nick Lane books. Oh really? That's awesome. Yeah, and the uh, oxygen books. That was kind of funny reading that and mm. being like, oh my God, Jonathan's in here. <laughs> um, but to give a start, so it, a lot of this starts with phosphocreatine because phosphocreatine has been so poorly understood and misunderstood. And a lot of that was due to how it was traditionally measured. So in the training community, we're familiar with this idea that when you start a max effort sprint, there's a ton of phosphocreatine consumption, then it starts to trail up as we go. So a lot of this was based off of traditional studies measuring phosphocreatine consumption during exercise. So the way that they would do this is what's called a freeze clamp technique. So they would have the muscle repeatedly contract, typically removed from an animal's body. So they're electrically stimulating the muscle and they know how much phosphocreatine they start with. They stimulate it say 50 times and then they uh, measure how much they finish with. And they go start, finish. That's how much phosphocreatine was consumed. So what we know now with um, in vivo studies in human beings using phosphorus nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy is phosphocreatine is being completely depleted and repleted on a millisecond by millisecond basis. So if you were to just say, um, let's do 30 seconds of exercise and measure starting and finishing phosphocreatine consumption, you're missing the fact that it's been completely drained and replenished multiple times. The way that I like to analogous analogize this is let's say me and you tim we're at coffee right now and we have a third friend let's say eric's at coffee with us so all three of us get a nice full mug of coffee and eric's like hey i gotta take a phone call i'm gonna step out of here so eric's gone for the next 20 minutes me and you both drink a full mug of coffee get a second refill drink it again now we're on our third cup and it's nice and full eric comes back and he goes oh you guys haven't even started drinking your coffee yet like what nice guys you're waiting for me what Eric hasn't seen is that we both already drank two full mugs of coffee, but it's a time scale issue. He's not seeing everything that happened between when he left and when he came back. 
the way that phosphocreatine consumption was traditionally measured is kind of like that because it's such a slow measurement period. They're not seeing the fact that it's being drained and replenished. And as a result, phosphocreatine consumption is actually roughly 40 times greater than traditionally believed. And additionally, phosphocreatine consumption doesn't stop after 10 seconds. If you do a 30 minute exercise bout, high intensity, steady state, whatever you want to do, your phosphocreatine and oxygen kinetics are actually going to be tightly coupled to one another. So if oxygen's going down, phosphocreatine's going down at the same rate. If oxygen's going up, same thing, phosphocreatine goes up with it. So in reality, these different energy pathways are so tightly coupled with each other on a millisecond contraction cycle that you there's never really a time that we could say we are anaerobic or we are a lactic because oxygen is always being used for energy production. Phosphogen is always being used. Lactate is always being used. So we're, we're everything at all times in a sense. And the only time when we are really pushing closer to anaerobic is when we're approaching failure. So it's almost reversed. If you do a max effort sprint right now, that's when you have the most oxygen contribution to your total energy production. And as you fatigue, there's less oxygen contributing to energy production where that traditional model would say the opposite. You start sprinting and you're primarily using ATP stores, phosphogen system, glycolytic system, and only tapping into the oxidative system after you've exhausted those other options. I think that's a perfect segue. So if you've, if I've gone through your videos correctly, it's the, it's the presence of oxygen and, and subsequently lactate, which I think you did a really good job of explaining lactate is not a, a fatigue substrate. And I've always looked at lactate dehydrogenase as this kind of like equilibrium step. It's reminding us that we're just really inefficient and glycolysis is a very expensive process. And mm. we have a lot of LDH production yep. and lactate has to leave the cell because we can't produce enough pyruvate that that comes mm-hmm. downstream problems. But with that being said, is this idea that oxygen and lactate is always present until um, we exhaust our ability to get oxygen diffusing into the cell. Mm-hmm. Set the framework of you know what you think the model of bioenergetics now should be in, re- in regards to what we just set up as what the, I guess the old model would be. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so to give some context, maybe for us to visualize something. So anyone who's ever used a nearest device, like a portamon or a moxie monitor, they're familiar with the fact that if you start sprinting on it, you'll see a gross decrease in oxygen saturation. The company that I work for, we actually developed an even more souped up version of that, that we're measuring oxygen kinetics at such a fast rate that we could actually see the full depletion and replenishment with each muscle contraction. So if you do a 20 second max effort sprint and there are 60 foot strikes during that period, you could see oxygen being completely drained every time the foot hits the ground and completely replenished while the leg is still in the air. So the way that I think about bioenergetics is really taking that old model and just compressing it down to a really short time scale. So within zero to 15 seconds of the muscle starting to contract, we're pretty much could exhaust our ATP stores in the tissue and ATP is needed to produce muscle work. Well, that's going to be a problem for us. We need a really rapid energy source to replenish that ATP in that zero to 15 second time, 15 millisecond time period. That's going to come from the hydrolysis of phosphocreatine. So you break phosphocreatine apart, it replenishes ATP. 
well, what, what happens to phosphocreatine then? Because you don't store a lot of phosphocreatine in the muscle. So if that's the only thing that's replenishing ATP, you're going to be in trouble pretty quick. This is where when you look in the biochemical literature, you see something that makes very little sense at face value and it's very paradoxical, but it makes sense in the larger context. So to restore phosphocreatine, you need a glycolytic intermediate. The problem is, is that we store very little glucose in our muscle tissues. So if you needed to break down glucose to replenish phosphocreatine, that's going to be a big problem for you. You're not going to last very long. But in the biochemical literature, they see this enzyme called glycogen phosphorylase being active in conditions where muscle glycogen concentrations are stable. And the reason why that makes no sense is glycogen phosphorylase's whole purpose is to break down muscle glycogen to turn it into glucose for energy production. So like, well, how is glycogen phosphorylase active when glycogen concentrations are stable? That doesn't really make any sense. But what's happening is glycogen phosphorylase is rapidly activating to break down glycogen to replenish phosphocreatine. So we have three steps now. ATP is broken down, phosphocreatine replenishes ATP, glycogen pools replenish phosphocreatine. Well, now the question is what replenishes glycogen? Glycogen is replenished from the oxidation of lactate. So by oxidizing lactate, enough ATP is produced to resynthesize glycogen and reestablish ion gradients. So within about 30 to 50 milliseconds, we're breaking down ATP, replenishing it with PCR, breaking down glycogen to replenish PCR, breaking down lactate to replenish glycogen. We do have excess lactate accumulation. Like you said, it's a really inefficient process. That's where you see lactate pooling. And while all of this is happening, oxidative phosphorylation is also occurring to replenish ATP. It's a little bit slower of a process. So maybe that's happening within that 50 to 100 millisecond period, but all these processes are active and it's such a fast rate that from a human's perception, we are always using oxygen. We are always using PCR, glycogen, lactate as fuel sources. So I'm very much thinking about it on this, like almost muscle contraction by contraction basis, where every time you contract, you are using oxygen, breaking down PCR, all these things in between contractions, you're replenishing. And at some point, if you're contracting hard enough and doing multiple contractions fast enough back to back, you're not going to be able to replenish sufficiently between contractions and you will start to fatigue but if we start with that very like uh, tight compartmentalized time frame, then we could extrapolate it out from there. So uh, a lot of things coming to my mind right now. One being, is this context dependent of maximal exertion of like either high force or high velocity, or is it like a universal thing? Yeah. So this is going to be, I'll say universal with some caveats. So it's universal because we are always going to be using these different quote unquote energy systems. Even if I'm just picking up my arm right now to swat a fly, oxygen is going to be consumed in the tissue. The caveat is that it's going to be to um, much smaller magnitude than if I were karate chopping that same motion really hard and putting a lot of force and velocity into it. And about how much oxygen is utilized, how quickly is it restored? Well, if you're utilizing oxygen at a slower rate, you're not having to replenish as much, you're gonna rely on those um, non-oxidative processes less. 
So you could think of them as an inverse relationship to an extent. When you start to deplete oxygen, you rely more on those non-oxidative processes to um, turn energy into a usable form. And because of the inefficiencies in that process, you will start to fatigue quicker. So it's uh, everything is happening at all times, but with some caveats. Yeah, very much so like fractals, right? Like that's it's just happening on different scales and different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with that being said, and you know, kind of getting into the context of all right, now and you know, specific adaptation to impose demand, you have someone who's extremely anaerobically adapted. You know, is this where it kind of get and they just develop more fast twitch muscle fiber or they detrain the amount of, uh, they have cardiac tissue that's basically hypertrophied and doesn't push out as much oxygen per beat, et cetera, et cetera. You know, with that being said is, you know, the, the thought I always talked about with anaerobic athletes and I work with like strength and power athletes, team sports, mm-hmm. weightlifting, et cetera, right? This idea that we are lowering, and I've always come from the premise of you're just producing too much fatigue substrates or too much acidity, and that's going to lower, lower the overall either density or volume we can do within a micro a training session, microcycle or mesocycle, and that's going to be the biggest rate limiting step. This, this I guess uh, fractal representation off of like this, we are always using all these energy systems in some way, shape, or form. But if I start to get myopically focused in one area then it becomes more a less efficient process or less um, rapid of a process. And then I start to suffer and produce more fatigue over time. You know, with that being said is, you know, this, and it could be inverted, right? We could look at mm-hmm. the aerobic athlete can't utilize these high energy yielding phosphate groups as quickly, or I'm sure in that level. But, you know, when you work with an athlete and you're saying, okay, like, this has to be true. This is a now a universal principle, like as we start to look at bioenergetics, mm-hmm. and you start to see from a performance perspective, and this is a very long winded question, I'm sorry, but from a, um, from a uh, uh, performance perspective, or strengths and weakness perspective, you know, what is your initial thought when you see someone that's extremely like limited in the counter system or the system that will support either high amounts of expression of force velocity or the system that will high, it, be it, like support the ability to repeat that. And you're like, are you looking at that of like, how do I maximize performance or how do I accentuate a weakness? Like, I, this is kind of like a tough question to answer, but you know, it's kind of where I'm at where personally yeah. right now, when I look at athletes, I'm like, ah, I don't know if it's a strength and weakness or peaking kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think part of this comes down to like how many other things does someone want to be good at? There's a big difference between someone who's weightlifting to compete in the sport of weightlifting someone who's weightlifting and trying to get their one RMs up to do CrossFit. Mm-hmm. So this is something that for years, I use the Moxie monitor, um, like we had talked about earlier, but one of the things that made it really hard to investigate these types of questions is that the frame rate of measurements is too slow. So if you had someone do a max snatch, you would think that there's not a lot of oxygen consumption because it's only giving a readout every two seconds. Um, we developed a new type of, uh, muscle oximeter that's taking measurements so quick that you could actually see oxygen consumption on a single contraction. And what we see with these weightlifters is that if they were to do a one rep max snatch, they might utilize 70% oxygen saturation in a single contraction. And that's great. They could utilize a lot of energy and produce a 
by virtue of that, there's an energetic trade-off that they're not going to be able to do that a lot of times. And part of that is one, like you said, they have a lot of fast twitch muscle fiber development. The great thing about fast twitch muscle fibers is the high rate of force development. The bad thing about fast twitch muscle fibers is that they have very poor vascular conductance. So they don't vasodilate as well, and they don't have as much capillary density. So when you utilize oxygen, there's a relatively small increase in blood flow to those fibers relative to how much oxygen is consumed. As a result of that, it's going to take them a bit of time before they could recharge, so to speak, and do it again. Hence why a lot of weightlifters, they may need to take multiple minutes between doing work sets. Now, is that problematic? They only care about being a good weightlifter. Maybe not at some point, maybe to the expense of training volume though, in order for them to accumulate enough volume in a session, you're like, it's a three hour workout. Yeah. That's probably an issue that needs to be addressed. But now on the flip side, we have a CrossFitter. Let's say they're actually equally as strong as that weightlifter. The CrossFitter tends to have much better vascular conductance. So when they utilize a given amount of oxygen, they have a greater increase in blood flow relative to that. So again, they might do that snatch and they might utilize that same amount of oxygen as the weightlifter, but they'll be able to vasodilate the skeletal muscle and get more blood into that tissue and replenish oxygen faster. And the CrossFitter may be able to do that load again in 30 seconds. So for that athlete, there's two competing needs. They need to be able to increase their one rep max, which may mean having more fiber conversion or they may need to develop more capillarity in those tissues to increase blood flow quicker. So it all becomes very contextual. So for me, what I'm always trying to think about is one, what is this athlete's goal? Like, do they only want to get stronger? Do they need repeatability at high percentages of their one rep max? And then once we understand all of their different needs, we can think of what are the rate limiting factors for these different needs in sometimes those rate limiting factors are competing. It's a seesaw. If you improve one, you make the other worse. And that's where you need to figure out what is the proper trade-off for this individual right now to increase their capacity. And the best CrossFitters are really just people that have to make less trade-offs. Um, that's where at some point, some athletes, they just might not be able to get better in the sport because for them to improve in the area that they're weakest, they're going to have to sacrifice something somewhere else. And that's the physiology of not being an elite top tier CrossFitter. So um, I got a really um, big question that I'm going to mm -hmm. hold off on right now because I think this is a really good jump off point. But before we get into that, I think it will help in terms of I struggle with this still of this oxygen, oxygen saturation or desaturation. And, mm -hmm. you know, what does that mean? Because I feel like in my mind, I'm thinking, oxygen means that we're no longer working anaerobic. And it's a tough thing to break that mindset, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, I'm no longer working power or force, right? So that's not what I want. It's like almost mm -hmm. like a size principle. I'm just working type one muscle fibers. It's not effective use of my time. Mm -hmm. And with this thought process of oxygen saturation, desaturation, you know, explain, you know, what that means and the difference between the two and what that actually like in terms of yielding some sort of output of, you know, hey, we lose strength and power when we become desaturated oxygen or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the way that I explain it traditionally, um, I ran track for a long time. So we have people running all different events and we would say the high jumpers, those guys are a lactic in the hundred meter sprinters. They're uh, 
a lactic endurance or lactic power, wherever you want to draw those boundaries. And then once we get up to my distance, the mile and the two mile where the aerobic endurance guys. So I think the idea of having classifications is useful, but I think it's helpful to rethink how these classifications work because establishing that all training is aerobic and all training is lactic. It's not very useful to say this high jumper and this marathon runner, they're both aerobic athletes. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that's technically true, but it's, it's completely useless from the perspective that we care about. So instead of to think, well, how could we reclassify these people to have something that is both true, but also useful for us. And that's where I think the idea of the rate of oxygen utilization comes into play, because let's say you're in a hundred meter sprinter, you start your hundred meter sprint with 70% oxygen saturation, and you just run all out. And at the end you finish with, 10%. So you use 60% of your total oxygen pool. You did that in let's say nine and a half seconds. Now I go running, go and I run a mile. I also start at 70%. Let's say we're very similar in that regard. And I also finish at 5%, but I ran that mile in four minutes, 30 seconds, let's say. So technically we both utilized the same amount of our total oxygen supply, but you did it at a way faster rate than I did. So this is where we could calculate the derivative of oxygen saturation. You'll get the slope of oxygen saturation, and that tells us your maximal rate of utilization. The faster the rate that you could utilize oxygen, the greater your power expression. In fact, these things are actually almost linearly correlated with one another. If you were improving your maximal rate of oxygen utilization over time, you're going to be improving your maximal power output and your rate of force development. So when I think of a weightlifter or a powerlifter, I'm thinking of guys that they're obviously good at utilizing oxygen, but they could do it really fast. And by virtue of that, they're also going to be pretty crappy marathon runners because someone that trains to utilize at a very fast rate, they're going to be very bad at sustaining their supply for a very long period. Then if you take that mile or that 5k, 10k runner, they have a slower rate of oxygen utilization. So they're training their bodies to essentially operate at as high of a power output as they can without outstripping their own oxygen supply. And by virtue of that, most of those athletes are pretty bad sprinters. They don't have good top speed or a good kick because they haven't trained to utilize at a very fast rate. So it gives us these like uh, breakdowns of like the weightlifter. They have a crazy rate of oxygen utilization. They might utilize 70% of their total pool in a half a second. So we could think about it that way, where like, even when we're doing strength work, it is oxygen utilization. It's just occurring so fast that um, it's just a different thing fundamentally than it is for the endurance athlete. Yeah. It's, it's a profound thought and it's, it's kind of one of those ones where basically you just got told your God isn't real kind of thing. Like, wow, this is hard to think about and really process. Um, I'm still working through it to be completely frank. It's, it's breaking a lot of like pre-existing things. Like I don't have to worry about that anymore. And now it's mm-hmm. like, I still have to worry about it. Um, but with that being said, and um, I, I think track and field is a really, and, and even weightlifting is a really interesting case study to, to use here because, you know, the thing that we look at from, all right, there's the biomotor ability, there's the bioenergetics, and then there's the technical aspect or the, mm-hmm. the biomechanical, right? And we can look at it from each one of those 
is you know siloed off you've ever read anything by james smith and like this you know governing dynamics and it's all converging into one you know massive thing and we're just kind of pulling levers much different areas you know but this other thought of of okay and i think it's depending what we asked and what do you work strength and weakness and peaking in terms of improving the biomechanical or the technical right this idea of like if I have someone who's going to do a scissor kick over a high jump, they're going to have to express a lot of force and power to get over that. Versus mm -hmm. if I teach them how to do a Fosberg, Fosberg flop, they're going to use more passive energy, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to be so reliant on getting as high. They just mm -hmm. have to manipulate their body to use their more passive structures, structures connective tissue, mm -hmm. which doesn't have contractile ability. Yeah. You know, when you're looking at someone's nears and saying, okay, pre, this is where they're at. You know, have mm -hmm. you ever thought about like just creating almost like this, this like, experimental design of like, we're only going to focus on, on bioenergetics with this person and improving their mm -hmm. rate of oxygen utilization for strength and power sports, or mm -hmm. I'm going to look at this biomechanical aspect and try to use the more series elastic opponent or the more parallel elastic opponent mm -hmm. and not have as much mechanical energy production. Um, and I'm not saying that we have to choose on one, mm -hmm. but do you see someone improves technique? Someone like CrossFit's a really good example. Like I, I've always said that over time, when you have these performance outlets, Mm -hmm. that eventually reaches this apex of i can only get so good from a strength power and capacity yeah. standpoint so i have to improve either learning how to kip or learning how to you know tap and go or whatever other techniques crossfits have mastered to you know manipulate the more passive mm -hmm. energy to get better like you know when you're looking at someone and you're saying like okay this person's just depleting oxygen at a rapid level or they're not recovering or whatever yeah. it is and their technique sucks you know what's the what's the right direction here or yeah. what's the the process of like this is a biomechanical thing i gotta tell yeah. them to go with the coach over here so here. i think this is a great this is like an awesome question because to me this is why when you speak to someone who's only ever worked in an exercise physiology lab a lot of their recommendations like i mean you've probably heard them i've heard them they don't really make sense when you've worked with real human beings and you understand the nuances. So, I mean, in reality, everyone could probably improve the bioenergetic and biomotor capacities. But if we want to play this game of thinking like, which is more important, I think this is a question we could answer to some degree. So I think about it as which of those is their rate limiting factor. So you see this example in CrossFit all the time. You get X triathlete VO2 max through the roof. They could beat, every games athlete in a 2k row and a mile run, all these things. And then you put them in the open and you're like, Oh, they're 180,000th in the world. They're really bad at CrossFit. You're like, okay, well, how could that be? And let's assume this triathlete is very strong in reality. We know that's probably not going to be the case if they're just coming right into CrossFit. Well, they may have a very high VO2 max. They may be strong, but they have very poor movement economy. So relative to the sport specific movements, they're going to be expending a ton of energy and just burning matches on every rep that they do. Where on the flip side, we often run into these athletes that are kind of like bubble level games competitors where they're really good at the sport. Their movement economy is phenomenal. Um, they're very strong, very skilled, but their VO2 maxes might be a little bit too low to be a top CrossFit games competitor. So you might say, okay, well, this athlete, they're really limited by their pulmonary systems endurance. They can't uptake oxygen quick enough and expel carbon dioxide. That's a rate limiting factor. If we improve that, we get their VO2 max up, their CrossFit performance goes up. 
in reality, we very rarely have an athlete that is only limited by bioenergetic competencies or an athlete who's only limited by biomotor competencies. And these things are really tightly married to one another. So this is where I think we, we always have to think from like a big system standpoint. I really like getting in the weeds and uh, into these really nuanced areas, but uh, something that always brings me back to the present is knowing that I actually have to make someone's performance better. And that uh, really shocks you back into thinking in practical terms. So this is where there's an awesome case study on Paul Radcliffe from 15 years ago or so. So uh, I don't know if she's still a world record marathon runner, but at the time she was the female world record marathon runner, Olympic gold medalist. They did a five-year case study on her. Over these five years, her performance got better and better at her race event so you're like, sweet. But they also measured her VO2 max every year and it got lower every single year. So you're like, what is going on? Her ability to supply oxygen and utilize oxygen, the tissues is getting worse every year, but her performance is getting better. Chaos. Well, when you look at the velocity data, what you see, even though her VO2 max is going down each year, you could think of that as her engine is getting smaller the speed that she could run at her VO2 max was getting higher and higher. So essentially, even though her engine was getting smaller, her fuel economy was getting better. And this really just comes down to these biomotor qualities. She's able to run at a given pace, expending less energy. And to your point, this is something that I think every CrossFit athlete could improve on because you think of Paul Radcliffe running a hundred miles per week for years up until that point and years after Late in her career, she was still improving her economy. After running hundreds of thousands of miles, is there a single CrossFit Games competitor that has done 500,000 thrusters or wall balls or ring muscle-ups? Probably not. So for CrossFit athletes, most of them do need to improve their engines, so to speak, but they're all really horribly inefficient as well. And I don't say that as uh, like poo-pooing them. What they do is incredible. Um, but when you actually look at their metabolic analysis, when they do their sport, they just expend insane amounts of energy per rep. I think that kind of goes into every specialized athlete there. Yeah. They, they sacrifice just general capacity and health for performance outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, the way I like, I work with Gen Pop now pretty much exclusively. And the way I frame it for them, um, in a really good book called Scale by uh, Jeffrey West. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I haven't. It's essentially why organisms live and die, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, and he broke it down into three key principles, right? It's the higher your body temperature, the more energy you expend and the more beats you have, right? This is like the, the, the thing that actually breaks down systems rapidly. And, and mm-hmm. you could, you could express that out in a bunch of different terms, but like, you know, we talk about from, you know, the hacking community, right? The, I got to do cold water immersion. I got to do fasting. And then I got to do, um, you know, some sort of, of extreme performance thing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I got to be able to do 500 pound deadlift and whatever. Right. But all that comes at a cost, right? Mm -hmm. All these things come at a cost and they're kind of reactionary to things that you should be doing on a general basis. Right. Like, I eat more to compensate because I'm exercising more. Well, that's that's bioenergetically going to have some sort of outcome that leads to downstream effects of inflammation and reactive oxygen species and all these things, right? Or I'm going to do cold water immersion because my body's just 
constantly hot because I'm expending calories all day, you know? And then the final thing is like, you know, this idea of I'm going to eat less because I have to eat so much in certain periods of time, or I'm going to have restricted time feedings. Like, you know, it's, it's yeah. chicken or the egg, but like, you know, we're making these concessions to the things that we, you know, prioritize just arbitrarily for, you know, oh, wow, okay, I want to be able to deadlift 500 pounds. What does that really matter? What does that mean other than just some sort of goal and the sacrifice you have to make to get to that? But that's the deal. It's, you know, this is going to come at a cost some way, shape or form. It's just, are you okay with the cost that this is going to actually do? And instead of thinking about this reactionary measure of of fasting, cold water immersion, and, Mm -hmm. you know, just overall, like, getting more parasympathetic uh, artificially, you know, it's like, okay, maybe we need to look at having more sustainable planning. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that we talk about is, can we get more from last? Can we train three days a week and get really good results and be really good on the outside? No, no, I got to choke six days a week and I got to get shit faced on Friday night and, you know, I'm going to eat all these foods and there's no way around it. Like, (laughs) okay, we're kind of, kind of looking at this wrong, but I think in terms of all performance, right? I work with football, I work with basketball, like they're always sacrificing something for the greater good. It's just, you know, the longevity and it doesn't come out until they start to decline in at a rapid rate prematurely, right? You get to 30 and your career starts to drop off, right? And like, you know, that process is okay. Early on with athletes, you know, can we mitigate damage? Can we promote sustainability? And I'm going to get into this like question here in a second. Sorry, this is again, very long winded question, but um, it's this idea of like, early early sacrifices for the greater good and myopically focusing on singular qualities you know always comes at a cost and you know this pushing the needle towards something that we think is valuable without any conscious thought of the long-term ramifications you know it goes into this you know really really ardent debate on okay what what is the most important thing that we do is promoting performance or you know supporting health and there's no Mm -hmm. real right answer but what I would say, and this is where you're talking about CrossFit in general, is this, you know, idea of short-term validation from being tired from a workout. And I think one of the big arguments, and the listeners here know me, like, I don't, I don't want to say that I'm outwardly against CrossFit. I'm outwardly against. There's some stuff about CrossFit that bothers me, like lack of principles, mm-hmm. lack of progression, throwing people into fixed weights and making it too performance hierarchy, whatever. That's mm-hmm. that's aside from the point. But the, I did, and this is you've really made me think about this is this idea of like we're always if you're always focusing on like this high intensity interval or glycolytic system and i would have this op, uh, objection to anything that's hip based or like uh you look at f45 or any other model out there that's just let's just get them tired for an hour like mm-hmm. there's a consequence to that and it's not sustainable and it's represented into high churn rate at these facilities and high burnout rate and you know yo-yoing up and down and high rates of orthopedic injuries but i think that stemmed from Charlie Francis's key concepts and saying that it's one or the other, it's binary, You're either working a lactic or oxidative. And in between is this like metabolic danger zone, um, which when you were describing that, like lactic systems always working, the better we can manage that and the better we can leverage that, the more powerful. And I just had a really interesting discussion with um, compound performance, Kyle Dobbs of like, you know, I make these, very binary like statements to to elicit some sort of like 
reactionary response to not doing anything. And I don't know if that's productive, right? And I'm thinking in my head of like, I've just said CrossFit's bad, overly glycolytic exercise bad. I have an agenda, I have a bias, et cetera. But it stems from like Charlie Francis just saying, hey, this is metabolic danger zone. Avoid it like it's the, yeah. avoid it like it's cigarettes and never do anything in between. But you know, you have evidence to say that's not necessarily exactly true. And there's like exceptions to that. And there's our efficient people who do do glycolytic stuff, or, you know, I guess I should say more lactate focused stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so my question to this would be is, you know, how do we leverage this energy system or that time frame of like 30 to 60 seconds in a sustainable way? How do we utilize this short, intense, visceral type of work in a way that we can promote health and longevity to while still accomplishing all the performance means. And I'm sorry if that was like, holy, I have no idea what he means and like where he's going with that. But, I don't know. I, you know I, that's I, where I'm, I'm kind of leaning sure. on because I'm, I'm processing this myself. And I've said very like, this is all or nothing. It's black and white. Don't do it. Right. And now I have to reconcile the fact that maybe that was actually the wrong thing. And maybe that's not actually the best thing for everyone around me. And I think there's an element of, of, okay, now you have information that's just proves that logic somewhat incomplete or wrong and i have to i want to get your take on that and you know just i guess showing face on okay i'm i'm reconciling the fact that i was probably not completely right on that no so like many things i think the devil's in the details because typically when people do do these very high intensity 30 60 90 second work bouts they go about it in a way that is wholly counterproductive so i haven't really worked too much with the gen pop in crossfit so I do think there's a lot of issues with the group class structure, just to kind of piggyback off of that. But yeah. typically I've worked with the uh, higher level competitors in the sport. And at that level, it is more of traditional strength and conditioning. So they're competing in CrossFit, but you look at anything they're doing from a program design perspective and you're like, oh, it's just strength and conditioning. Yeah. That said, when you have athletes work in these time domains, what you typically see is you tell someone you're working at the highest steady state power output that you can for 60 seconds that is the goal instead what they do is they just come out guns blazing hit a wall in 15 seconds and then just hang on for dear life for the next 45 seconds and that leaves athletes toasted it's very fatiguing their movement patterns break down which is where you see a lot of these orthopedic issues if we go back to this muscle oxygenation standpoint effectively what happens is they start at a nice high oxygen saturation level, hits the floor around five to 10 seconds in, and then they just sustain a minimum oxygenation level. When that's happening, they're relying on glycolysis to power their movement, but that's very inefficient. So this is where you start getting into all these compensatory movement patterns. People just start breaking down mechanically and their power output really just starts tailing off and it becomes a miserable experience. Yeah, you do that one time a week, a few times a week consistently, you're going to be burnt out quite quick. On the flip side, though, when athletes actually execute on these types of workouts well, they're really not that taxing. So instead, if I told this athlete, we're going to find the power output that you could sustain in this severe intensity domain, and we're going to ramp you up to this power output over 10 to 15 seconds and hold you right there for the remaining period. And effectively, instead, what you see is a gradual oxygen desaturation down to a relatively low level, not completely bottomed out, then maintaining the muscle in that hypoxic state. Athletes finish and they're like, man, that was hard. 
but they're not wrecked. And the difference physiologically is in that latter case, as they're desaturating to this very low level and maintaining, they're reaching a high percentage of their VO2 peak, but they're still able to coordinate their breathing. So they're actually reaching a metabolic steady state with the tissue at a low oxygenation level versus just bringing someone low or they can't compensate and there's no steady state or homeostasis reached at that point. So on paper, you would say, okay, the time domain, 60 seconds, the relative intensities, whatever you want to call it, these are two equivalent things. But in reality, we know those are totally different. And I think that's where the problem comes in is most people don't actually know how to execute on those types of workouts. So it ends up being a wholly counterproductive way to train. Yeah, it's like running a 400 meter sprint. Most people just come out the gates first hundred, like as yeah. fast as they can go. And they just hit this wall. Yeah. Uh, now off of that, and this is the second part of this process. And this could be either me getting just two in the weeds and trying to like confirm my own bias on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the poor execution is, is key to this, right? Like no one really knows how to do this energy system effectively. And, mm-hmm. and cause we don't have, I always go on like heart rate recovery and things like mm-hmm. that. Like if you can't recover, it's not, you probably did too much, but either way from this idea of we train ourselves to survive this, right? So mm-hmm. we're always working in a fatigue state. So fitness and fatigue become inverted and we start to see people slowly decline in, in performance and body composition, all sorts of stuff. But then the other side of it is we train ourselves to pace it, right? We don't want to feel that nausea or that hitting the wall or just, I knew my technique was really bad and I hurt my mm-hmm. back. So now I'm always in this like, very lowered state of output. So fitness fatigue becomes inverted and central governor becomes really low because we're scared or we don't want to feel that again, right? If I, you know, run into a wall and I said, that hurts, I'm not going to do that again. The same thing in terms of next time I have to do this. And if you're asked to do this repeatedly and repeatedly, repeatedly, you know, eventually your output is going to be lowered. And that becomes a universal approach to any exercise, right? We're going to do a one RM. I'm only going to go to a certain level. Hey, we're going to do a uh, 1.5 mile Cooper test. I'm only going to go to a certain level. And we train ourselves to go at a lower level and pace everything. And I think that's the part that like teaching gen pop people, teaching athletes is, you know, this idea when we're doing a very high phosphogen output that it needs an inordinate amount of rest, a boring elongated period time between because as you said like that oxygen saturation it's it dropped quickly but in order to to be able to do that again depending on our fitness like you know it could take three to five minutes in between some of these really high outputs and that's boring it's tedious it's you fill times as a coach of like hey evan how's your day doing what do you got planned this weekend oh man maybe you need to pick your knee up in front when you're sprinting like you find you get better at milking the time in between in order to get these outputs in order to get maximal expression but what always happens is i get bored you get bored like ah you're fine go get another rep and then you start to lower your output it's the same thing for all these energy systems right and yeah you know when i would talk to people about if you're doing any high intensity interval it's good in small doses don't get custom to it and don't get good at it because you're only going to lower your governor and you're only going to really increase your fatigue to a degree that you're never really developing or adapting um yeah i think is that fair yeah totally and i think something else that happens too it actually let me start with a example and then we could work this back in so take the average person you're okay we're gonna do 100 meter sprints right now 
run this at 80% effort and they go and do it and you rest and you say 85% effort and they get a little faster and you say 90% effort and they get faster and you go do this one a hundred percent effort. What you typically see is people don't get any faster. What do people do when you tell them to go max effort? They start doing what they think is working harder, like pushing, 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 but they actually start resisting themselves. They have so much tension that they actually just eat up their own energy and restrict their movement. If you ever watch an 100 meter sprinter, a real 100 meter sprinter, they look so relaxed. If you took a picture of their face, you'd like, or they just like sitting on their couch watching Netflix. You wouldn't know, like you see their cheeks bouncing up and down. If you walked up and you push them from the side, they would just fall over. But when most people do a hundred meter sprint, they think, oh, push as hard as I can. And their whole body tenses up. And this is what happens when you tell someone we're going to do a 60 second high effort bout of exercise right now. They try too hard. They actually create restriction. They tighten their neck up. They grunt their face. So I think with these types of workouts as well, teaching people, how do you express high power outputs without overexerting yourself to do it. So how it sounds very counterintuitive or paradoxical, but how do you remain calm and relaxed when expressing maximal power? Because when you do that, it's also not going to be as mechanically stressful because you're not fighting your own movement. And that's something that's, I mean, I don't know if you can teach that in a gen pop setting in any reasonable amount of time. But I think that even applies to the higher levels in sport. You certainly see it in CrossFit when athletes get tired, they're like, I'm just going to pull on this bar harder. I'm going to like grunt more. And I think we could all learn something from sprinters and say, no, there's a way to exert maximal effort, but still remain calm and under control. So it's almost like the, the Zen of <laughs> maximal power. So, uh, is there's a couple of really good resources on this topic. One would be uh, high intensity training by like Mike Mentzer, um, some of the old school stuff by Arthur Jones. And their whole premise was you should only do things to failure. And with that comes is if you do it to failure, you only need one set and you only need to train that muscle group or that movement pattern once every seven to 10 days. Uh, and that's the level of effort they're trying to elicit. Right. And then, you know, Dr. Kramer comes in and says, that's stupid. We shouldn't do this with athletes and we're going to do multiple submaximal efforts. Right. And, you know, I think that's the pendulum is kind of like swinging back and forth of like, I wish a lot of people I work with would get more from the sets and reps that we're asking them to do, right? Like this, yeah. develop more of a connection to what you're doing and know the intent. So we, we go through Erickson's model with all of our staff, like, what is the goal? What is the focus? What is the feedback? What should be the challenge? Right. And mm-hmm. we follow this progressive overload scheme of like week one, it's about creating this awareness of what we're doing. And then it progresses to performing what we're doing, or the mm-hmm. challenge should be low to high, but we're going to increase or titrate up our intensity and technical aspects or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the other one would be this book by Bud Charinga is called Demasculization of Sport. And what he looked at was the difference between men and women since the advent of recategorizing weight classes because everyone was on anabolic steroids and that we just can't count those records anymore. It's just, Mm -hmm. we're not going to reach that. So let's just recategorize weight classes. Let's try to limit drug usage and just start from scratch, like scorch earth. And what he showed over the past 20 years or, or four or five Olympic cycles is women have made steadily increase. And now granted, it's a little bit more of its infancy than men, but 
The truth is it comes down to one fundamental aspect is when you're using anabolic steroids, you use more aggression and more mechanical energy to go. And when you're more, you're not as using much anabolic steroids for whatever reason, maybe it's just not as effective with female athletes is you have to find other means to express force. So that example you talk about with, you know, literally facial expression while you're lifting, he'll literally show side by side, like Lu Zhan versus the best Chinese female weightlifter. And like, he's got this like aggressive look, like he's trying to rip a head off a line and the female looks like she's about to fall asleep. And mm -hmm. he even goes to the point of looking at between sets, like males need to be fanned off because they're so hot. Females wear a blanket to stay warm. Mm -hmm. And, and the idea is like completely transformed from like, instead of pulling the bar upwards, it's about getting under the bars fast. And he made the analogy mm -hmm. of Fosberg flop, but it, it leads to this idea of like, you know, really high levels of output. I think just come down to understanding what the purpose is and what the intent is and what is the prerequisite amount of energy you need to give to get the most from this. So yeah. if I only need to pull the bar to my waist, I'm not thinking I need to go at this and stop my feet and go, ha, ah, and then pull the bar as high as I can. It's about, I need to get to this point and then I need to rapidly relax and drop under it. Or the mm -hmm. same thing with like, if I'm a, I'm a hundred meter sprinter and I'm, I got to sell out in the first 20 meters because I'm going to get buried in the last 80. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to put a lot of force into the ground and I'm going to probably have a lot of side to side motion. It looks like I'm like angry running and punching my own chin versus that person. Like I know I'm going to be able to hit that back end and very relaxed and get into this figure four to front side mechanics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they start actually watching me run, all the people next left to right of me are only going to see my heels kind of thing like that. Mm -hmm. That level of knowing that, you know, hey, I got this in certain parts. I think it comes down again to what you really look at the stuff, what Arthur Jones was talking about and how it's kind of gone away from it is like, just know the objective and know the intent and know what you need to do on that given set in order to be successful. Like, right. Like mm -hmm. we're, and we go in a lot of it, like of where should we feel this exercise? I should feel it in my quads, right? I'm working a knee dominant anterior chain exercise. And granted it's a total body lift all the time, but like, do you feel it in your quads? No. Okay. Well, it's probably a biomechanical thing. We're probably just not focusing enough. And like, yeah. do I need to do as much volume in that? Do I need to do, you know, six days a week of this? Do I need to do, uh, you know, hundred sets of this to actually get something out of it versus mm -hmm. can I just do one set and get a lot out of it? And you know, the economy of what we're doing. And if I'm a betting man, I'm thinking about the top CrossFit athletes are getting short, but intense workouts and knowing what they need to do and getting out. Right. And like, that's the only way you can survive and being that multifaceted and going through all the things they need to do in a given day from a skill and bioenergetics mm -hmm. and biomotor and biomechanical thing of like, you just don't have a lot of energy to burn. You can't waste time. And like, you got to keep these like 30 to 45 minute workouts multiple times yeah. a day and be really good within that. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. I think what people don't realize when CrossFit games athletes, some of them will say, I train six times a day. People are like, Oh my God, they're doing like 10 hours of training a day. And it's like, no, like a session literally might be coming in, warming up for 15, 20 minutes, doing a few sets of snatches, a few sets of squats, leaving you're out in 30, 40 minutes and then taking a nap, getting some food, coming back and just doing that all throughout the day. So in truth, if you actually added up all of their training volume across these six sessions, it's maybe like two and a half, three hours of workouts. It's not nearly as high as you'd think it is, yeah. but everything is with such high intent and focus that it's all effective volume. Whereas a lot of the like bubble level athletes, they hear, oh, I need to train this much and they'll do these 
multiple two to three hour sessions in a day, two or three of those, but their training quality is just so poor. One of the things that I found is those athletes get burnt out, they get injured and having coached a lot of those bubble level individuals, almost uniformly, I'll just cut their volume like in half when I start working with them. And they're like, no, there's no way I could get better. And all of a sudden their rate of progress just takes off. And they're like, how is this possible? Like it's magic. I'm doing half as much work. And it's like, no, you just have really inefficient training prior. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I think this is, and I mentioned this before we got on the call, like, and I, I think there's the same problem in team sports, right? And working, I work with American football for over a decade in the college level. And, you know, the one thing that you learn really quickly is just, it, there's a lot of dogma. There's a lot of like, it's because we've always done it kind of mentality, but you know, one of the things you look at is like, all right, hey, if I'm looking at, we tracked RP, we tracked workloads, we tracked GPS, and we look at it from some of our athletes in our perimeter athletes, we're going five, six miles in a practice. Mm-hmm. All right, well, how do I mitigate that? It can go over practice design with the coaches, which a lot of times is insulting to them, but hey, we don't need to do a drill over here and then do a drill 300 yards away and then go back and forth six times. Like, we don't need to do that. Or the other part is, Okay, well, we know we can manage workloads, whether it's ex- expressed by RPE times minutes of activity, or if we have an internal measurement like a heart rate monitor, you know, we can look at it from, okay, it can decrease the amount of workload by altering the length of practice or altering the equipment needed to wear during practice, right? So, you know, big thing is called helmet shells and full, right? So for full, we're mm-hmm. full lower and upper if we're wearing just helmets and work shells. But infinitely less intense when we start taking equipment away, right? We're not going to the ground as often. We're not going through full contact periods. Uh, We have to adjust the practice format. But what that comes is like, you know, this thought of we need to become better at what we're doing with what we got, right? And, you know, we can play this odds game of like, I call it attrition base, but we bring in 200 people every year and hopefully that we have enough 22 guys to be able to play on Saturday versus we got 22 people that probably can play at a high level and help us win. Yeah. We need to maximize that for these guys. But you know, one of the things you look at, same thing I work about general pop is instead of thinking about how do you do more, think about how do you get more from less? And like, and if we can get the same output and the same installation and the same level of execution and technical aspects of the sport of football in half the periods in practice or half the practice length, why wouldn't we do that? Oh, because mm-hmm. we have the time, we need to arbor, we need to take it. You know, we didn't even have the time and we'd go over the time and we're less efficient in that. Like there's so much areas to trim the fat, so to speak, and like everyone across the board. But I think it just comes down to like if you condition yourself of I gotta go work out twenty hours a week or you know, I gotta do cardio at five in the morning and then I gotta get my strength training at ten and I gotta do some sort of like energy system work at six, like you're probably going to condition yourself to not give as much effort as you should during that period versus, mm-hmm. Hey, Evan, all you got is 20 minutes today. You have to make it good. Like, Oh my God. Okay. What do I do? Like you got to bust your ass during this 20 minutes, like make it the best 20 minutes possible. I think that's just where hopefully we're going to get to as a, as an industry, right? Like it's, you know, like, and I tell everyone, like it's in my best interest to have you come more. Like I make more money when you come yeah. more, like, why, why don't you understand? I'm telling you, I want you to get good results before I make money. Like, that's where I'll make my money is you getting great results and staying like, so yeah. if you come more often, that's in my best interest, but it's not in yours. So I'm telling you what you should do in your best interest, yeah. um, which is always like, like, you know, no, I don't believe you still like, all right, please give me your money. I'll gladly take you six days a week. Yeah. But I don't think that's the best decision. That's not the responsible thing. But, um, so I want to finish off with, uh, this important, distinction. And you mentioned in your video, this, you know, idea of like, and uh, there's a really 
I think foundational article. I don't know if you've ever read anything by Steve Plisk, um, mm-hmm. but it talked about anaerobic conditioning in the early eighties. Um, the, 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 the classic tale I heard, and this could be, I once caught a fish this big is that he wrote the NSCA bioenergetics chapter all from the top of his head in like mm-hmm. an hour, something like that. Like, who knows if it's like the he's gotten a savant level status, but I always thought Steve Plisk is this brilliant guy that never got enough credit, but he wrote anaerobic conditioning, like 1980 something early eighties, right? 82, 83. And, you know, in that he broke it down into two different subsets, power and capacity. And he talked about power is just this one all out hundred meter sprint. That's it. Right. And breaking down all the three traditional energy systems of anaerobic, alactic, anaerobic, glycolytic, anaerobic, or aerobic oxidative, or whatever we want to classify it as. Mm-hmm. But each one has this thought process. If it's really short and intense, the lowest rung of that, but a high level output, mm-hmm. versus you mentioned in one of your videos, this elongated like version of that, right? So if it's two to 10 seconds for anaerobic, alactic capacity could be considered 10 seconds. But I always thought about it, and this is what he talked about with you need to develop concurrently an aerobic capacity because your ability to repeat that is limited. Mm -hmm. And when we look at power versus capacity, you could look at it as the spectrums of that energy system, or we could look at it as maximal expression repeated over time. Mm -hmm. So my thought was with team sports is we need to have high levels of expression and we need to repeat that. So developing oxidative pathways or more aerobic pathways or leveraging now the running at a lower state not utilizing oxygen as rapidly Mm -hmm. um is as important as having maximal expression you know Mm -hmm. explain the thought process of where you're thinking about from this like continuum of this energy utilization or this oxygen or not oxygen utilization lactate and not lactate utilization Mm -hmm. and then is there a a level of how do we improve our our repeatability or is it hey we need to be able to go longer harder what what would you say on that yes i think it becomes very goal dependent um the way that i think about is almost in a much more compressed fashion so we could even go muscle contraction by muscle contraction so we let's say we're trying to get someone faster, whatever that means for their goal. There's a certain speed that they're going to be going to need to be able to reach. Okay. So we get them up to that speed. Now we think, well, they need to sustain that speed. So how much oxygen are they using every time their foot hits the ground? At some point, if you're fast enough, you're not going to be able to lower the total oxygen cost of that muscle contraction. Like it's going to cost what it's going to cost. You could optimize it here and there, but you're not going night or day differences with that. Well, now where the capacity comes in is, could you replenish oxygen quick enough before the next contraction? And that's where capacity comes in. So it's almost like necessities versus sufficiencies. So you need to be able to utilize oxygen at this fast rate but that's not sufficient for being able to sustain this output. You also need to replenish between contractions. And that's where we could think about it from like a whole interval workout standpoint of if you do a 30 second sprint, are you limited by your ability to supply or utilize oxygen in the muscle? That's one way to think of it on a macro scale, but then on a micro scale on each foot strike, are you limited by your ability to supply or utilize oxygen? So by taking these two simultaneous views and keeping both of these things in mind, you could understand relative to someone's goal, what they need to actually prioritize in their training. And maybe it's some degree of both. Maybe they're very biased and you need to improve one of those things or the other. Um, 
but it's very non-binary. It's not like power capacity. Again, it's going back to the oxidative, non-oxidative. It's always both at varying levels. And depending on the person in their specific context, you may need to prioritize one over the other. So um, I think that's, I think that's probably a good stopping point. Um, to be honest, I, I want, I just want to say thank you. Cause I think the, the thing that as we start to get comfortable with certain aspects of performance and strength conditioning and all the factors that go into it, the Pandora's box of, of coaching and performance training and programming, et cetera, you know, this level of, there's someone out there hustling to try to figure out something a little bit more in depth. And, you know, there's so many great uh, people in biomechanics, so many people who are great in biomotor abilities, so many people that now are like I'm seeing with bioenergetics is, you know, pushing the boundaries in these areas. And um, so thank you for just doing the work and like, you know, getting in depth of that because um, you just don't rest on your laurel, so to speak. Uh, we have such an incomplete, you know, truth and, and uh, we're, we're, barely even scratching the surface of anything that we really know about the human body. And, um, you know, we should just constantly get into it. Um, where can people find you? Uh, you have a blog, you have a paid site coming out, I believe, or it's already out. And, um, you know, what, what, where can we learn more about you? Yeah. So, uh, man, easiest place to just stay up to date with what I'm doing. I, post everything on Instagram. It's just my name, Evan Pycon. Uh, pretty easy to find me there. Um, I have a blog, Emergent Performance Lab on Substack. It's all archived now. I was publishing twice per week for about a year on there. So there's a ton of content. No longer active there, but people could find the whole archive. And then uh, to stay up to date with any new projects, uh, my company is Knox, N-N-O-X-X, um, Nox.com. You could find Nox Inc. on every social media platform. And that's where we're developing wearables and different ways of analyzing data to try and really understand um, what the limits of performance are and then how we could use this data to really push those boundaries. Really cool. I think there's a whole nother conversation on you know the utilization of wearables and I'm even like going into fuel substrates in relation to biogenics, but man, this is, this is probably a lot for people to unpack and there's some really cool talking points. So thank you um, again, because uh, I think this is first of hopefully many things that they can find out about you and hopefully it just opens up this whole new world for a lot of listeners. Because I think a lot of people listen to this or strength conditioning coaches is that like, all right, I got that covered. It's a lactic glycolytic oxidative yep. we're done right i don't need to worry about that anymore one last thing i'm being to worry about in a given day but that's not even remotely true and um and i think we've i personally have come up to a lot of shortcomings in a lot of areas that i'm like i don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense it doesn't make feel right and i'm you know I'm, i got knocked on my ass when i started reading your stuff and um and even some of the other folks that are like you know preaching the preaching the the aspects of we need to get a little bit better and understanding bioenergetics. So thank you. Um, and there's a whole nother conversation down the road. Yeah, of, totally. I'm always uh, game to have it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, uh, so thank you for all this. And uh, honestly, I'm looking forward to maintaining some sort of uh, conversation going forward, man. Yeah, for sure. I'm looking forward to that. And thanks again for having me on. Awesome.